Hello, hello, and welcome back to All Plotted Out, a My Little Pony Friendship is Magic podcast. My name is Pornhart, that's P-A-W-N Hart, I thank you very much. And this week we're closing in on that season six finale with the penultimate two episodes, Where the Apple Lies and Top Bolt. And I'm feeling comparatively psyched for this week's batch of episodes. So without further ado, Where the Apple Lies was... Wait a minute. If that's in this bag, then that means... Uh Uh-oh. Yep, this week we're in proper sitcom territory. Where the Apple Lies was first broadcast October the 8th, 2016, with a story by Megan McCarthy, requires no introduction, and he makes big money, he drives big cars, everybody knows him, it's like he's a movie star, it's only Dave Rapp. And the script is by, there he goes, deep type flows, Jacques Cousteau could never get that low, ah, Dave Rapp. Even I'm getting bored of this motif now. The IMDb plot synopsis reads, When Apple Bloom tells a white lie to cover up a mistake, Applejack shares the story of how she came to value honesty. It gets an aggregated score of 6.9, which is wrong. It's just wrong, sorry folks, because this is really good. Now, Dave's become quite a familiar presence this season. Not least for writing the script for Flutterbrutter, which was very good. And for Newbie Dash which was Newbie Dash. Don't think we've actually had enough so far to get his characteristics as a writer down. But if this episode's anything to go by, one of the main characteristics would be extremely tightly plotted stories. It perhaps seems apt in this case to start at the end. Because the flashback that's the centrepiece of this episode ends with Big Mac on an operating table about to have his extremities sawn off by an elderly relative. Sounds a bit grimmer on the page, doesn't it? And yet there is a bizarre, organic logic that has led all the way to this. And this isn't an absurd episode. It isn't an over-the-top episode. It's surprisingly grounded, quiet, character-based. It's just a really good character story with a really solid, well-illustrated message as a backbone. There's not much to complain about in terms of the way the episode operates. Uh, Forgive the pun. It's probably not going to pop out in people's memories as a sort of banner episode. Twilight doesn't go insane or grow wings. The library doesn't get blowed up. No one gets a cutie mark or has to deal with grief or disability. But this tight quieter Apple family tale is probably one of the better Apple exclusive episodes in the whole show run. And matching this are show best performances, I feel, from Tabitha St. Germain as Granny Smith, Ashley Ball as Applejack, and a particular treat this episode, Peter New as a very talkative Big Macintosh. It's a classic tale of a lie going out of hand. It opens with Apple Bloom, not really wanting to admit that she might have made a mistake. I mean, is it just me, or can everybody relate to Apple Bloom's position here? You doing a job, perhaps thinking it's a little easier than you expected, and then afterwards the boss, or 
similar figure comes up and says, uh, you, you did do X, didn't you? And that moment where the, the sweat accumulates seemingly on your eyelids. Really good, neat intro, this. Low-key, but with some very good believable characterization and interactions. Even Filthy Rich is painted interestingly here. Because, I mean, they wrote themselves into something of a corner by giving him that name, which instantly denotes a sort of sickening degree of, of arrogant privilege. But in this episode, he is depicted as not actually being that awful. He seems to be a pony of his word, and he doesn't seem to be trying to gouge or exploit the apples in any way. He's just a business pony. But when Apple Bloom's mistake is realised, and he is recalled, along with his stock, (laughs) I think it's a nice touch that instead of him being finger-wagging, or hoof-wagging, it should be, about Apple Bloom's mistake, he's instead terrified of litigation basically it's like oh oh, i I, I hope granny smith doesn't think we're trying to make off with some of her juice does she it's it's a nice little bit of character rounding for him in this episode as deliberately loathsome as his partner is in the flashbacks this episode is almost so neatly realized that there's not a huge amount to talk about that's certainly no discredit it's just the humor is organic The plot movements are organic, and it's nicely bookended by the scenes in the barn of the three older ponies recounting the story to Applebloom. I think, aside from being an Apple family episode, which perhaps puts people off, maybe it is the more low-key, sitcom-ish aspect of this episode that might put fans off. It probably feels a little bit everyday. Now, I have no problem with that at all, because I think it's really well done and measured out. But, I mean, it is telling that there's the characteristic level of detail and animation, but some of the extraneous detail feels a little bit dialed in from some of the louder episodes, should we say. In fact, it it, it might perhaps go a little too far into the kitchen sinkish aspects. That's in the gritty British drama sense, not in the everything but sense that after Applejack pushes Granny Smith into the supply cupboard, there is a pony visibly holding back tears while talking to a doctor in the lower left, and he's got a catheter and a shaved head, and it's... is it a little bit real? Then again, in the next scene, in pretty much exactly the same framing, we do get derby hoops with bandages over her eyes looking pretty unperturbed by the experience. And then, is that a brief glimpse of the Shining Twins in one of the corridors? Yeah, scratch that. Not only are the character exchanges really well played throughout this, there's an extra element of skill going on here, because the three main characters of the episode, Big Mac, Granny Smith, Applejack, are required to play themselves, for the majority, as slightly younger versions. And they really pull this off well. They're just slightly different in voice and in character. Well, except in Granny Smith. Without it being obtrusive. But yeah, Big Mac talking everyone's ear off is a real highlight and reason enough to watch the episode itself. It's great that the most stoic character in the entire show 
introduces himself in the flashback by wasting his words. His first line is, oh, Applejack, Applejack, Applejack. Which is just empty syllables, really. But he's not like a one-joke depiction in this. He's played as a believable character who's slightly too pompous, not the best listener, but also clearly cares about his family. I can believe this is the same character, just with a slightly cooler Billy Idol-style mane. E right. He has some of the best lines in it, obviously. With him sweating an explanation, we don't hear the start of to Filthy Rich and his partner. So from that moment on, I took to describing myself as big or large or... Eh, as impressions go, that's probably a six. I think what's important in a show like this that seems to go to such absurd lengths with the, the lie that one of the characters is spinning is that you understand why she's doing it. And in this case, with Applejack, you certainly do. The family and the farm means everything to her. And the idea that learning of the lie might make their main business partner back out of their deal is just not worth considering. It's logical and absurd in just the right measures. I mean, some people might say that it perhaps doesn't go too far in highlighting the the bizarreness of the ultimate fate of the characters here. But I think that's actually one of its merits. It feels very grounded, very slice of life, while dealing with some potentially over-the-top escalations. Also, <laughs> ah... Nice little subversion of the expected uh, hard-working ponies versus business-type relationship here. Well, somewhat callously, perhaps. It turns out that Granny Smith is intimidating filthy rich into maintaining the relationship. He is terrified of her and the pull that she holds over him owing to their family history. And so it reinforced at the end that it's like, don't forget, this old crank runs this farm and she really does just be honest with them i'm sure they'll understand where you're coming from yeah this is really tight sitcom writing and while i think it doesn't ultimately inform the ongoing story to any real degree and it's probably not going to leap out of the crowd to many people it's a really good episode that i feel deserves much more attention and appreciation than it has evidently received so yeah, really good job, Dave. 8.5. That's right. I give Where the Apple Lies the same score as I gave Lesson Zero. What of it? Watch me so low on jazz flute. Weird coincidence, you mentioning uh, 10 hour long, grim, dark, multi-part rock operas. You you weren't talking about those, right? <laughs> why, why are you treading on my segue? Look, let's just get on with this filler content and pretend it seamlessly bridges the gap between these two episodes, okay? So yeah, I love music. I write music. I write about music. I studied it at university, um, particularly the contextual side of it, because I can go into tedious detail about, I don't know, you name it. You want me to talk about a Mozart concerto? I can do that. You want me to wax lyrical about a Saxon or a Daft Punk album? I can do that. 
So this is going to act as sort of a brief overview of the ongoing Starship Ponyville Odyssey and a more specific review of the, the most recent instalment, 2020's Super Pony World Fairy Tales, which is in itself a three-hour concept album, and why I feel you should give it a spin. Violet Pony, young musician from Portland, Oregon, uh, has been making music, fandom music, uh, since the early 2010s, is still basically only in her mid-twenties, but has released an extraordinary body of work. Outside the Starship Ponyville bracket we'll be discussing today, she's done other works like uh, the Love Letters series, Love Letters Colourless is an excellent record. Cutie Marks, All the Things That Bind Us, released in 2021, got quite a bit of attention. And most recently, her album Fish Whisperer uh, was really good. I think I mentioned that actually in the first ever episode of this podcast. We're not really going to count the first couple of preliminary releases, uh, partly because she doesn't seem to. So we'll start by calling uh, 2016's Starship Ponyville as the origin point which makes Super Pony World Fairy Tales album four. Um, First record uh, she produced when she was 18. Uh, Extraordinarily diverse. Already shows a a real grasp of of, of different electronic music idioms. She evidently has a huge love of dubstep, sort of bro-step as it's called, evident Skrillex influence, as well as chiptune. A lot of uh, SNES RPG business going on, which I very much approve of. But also, you just get exercises from all over the pop spectrum. She seems very versatile. She has a, a range of, of, of collaborators that add dix, different textures to her work. And mean that, I should raise this now, one of the biggest selling points, I think, of Violet Pony is her versatility. Her ability to not only combine diverse genres into one track, but to experiment with most genres under the sun with a degree of convincingness. I mean, I can think of really solid examples she's done of pop-punk, dubstep, uh, cinematic classical, prog rock, ambient, folk music. She does a lot, often in the course of a single album. But the first three albums in the Starship Ponyville series roughly follow this template. Uh, The second release... The middle one, Mystic Acoustics, uh, is far more kind of atmospheric, cinematic, classical. And uh, it sort of stands apart from the others because of this more specific focus. And it is actually my favourite of the first three. Albums one and three of the series 
do similar things to fairy tales, but not quite as well. It's like a lot of the base ingredients are there, but it's it's Super Pony World fairy tales where it reaches its full distillation. I hesitate to use the term magnum opus, but oh, whoops, I've just used it. So there is a storyline underpinning this. I tried to work out what the storyline was from my my first few listens and failed. I deduced that there was a character called Rainer. I deduced that there were a bunch of places called uh, Statera, um, Azria, Meridian, Twilight is also there. But really, a lot of the stuff here is not show-canon-specific. It has its own world with its own central characters. And this can be seen as either a big plus or a big minus, depending on which side of the fence you come from. I feel in some ways it's a plus, because it means there is no more of a barrier to somebody coming in from outside the fandom as there is to someone already entrenched in it. Uh, the downside, which might, which might be implicit in that, is that it is kind of opaque, uh, unless you know the storyline. And I feel I'm not the best at following lyrics, and I'm not actually the best at following narrative in general. You might have noticed that I tend to glomp onto uh, character arcs as opposed to narrative or lore. Not only because it's my personal preference in terms of story focus, but also because I actually struggle to remember a lot of incidents, events, places. Uh, so I, I guess I like to keep it simple, which Starship Ponyville I does not, by, <laughs> by my reckoning at least. Uh, there's some people who probably find it far less problematic. And there's a sense of adventure. Um, yeah, um, hmm. The sense of adventure thing is, is really important to generating both scale and maintaining my interest in the movement of the plot because I have no understanding of what's going on. Uh, or at least didn't until I found that the first two albums are covered on a couple of fan fictions written by Violet herself that are on film fiction. Um, very loosely, there is a pony raised amongst like a secret cult that span off from uh, Starlight Glimmer's village. She runs away from this oppressive place and is taken in by equestrian parents. Uh, She rises up to be very important to Princess Celestia, who kind of acts as as a mentor. But there's some civil unrest and I think there's a, a, a civil war that results in this secret Starship Ponyville project engineered by Twilight Luna Celestia um, et al., which is a mission of exploration to find new habitable worlds. I gather that they all sort of lift off together on this grand adventure at the end of the second album, Mystic Acoustics. Meaning the third album is, as I thought, more or less sort of space travel. But it appears that on returning, or nearly returning, to Equestria, the party are attacked and overrun by a hitherto unknown sibling of the Royal Pony Sisters called Spectre, 
who effectively takes control. This leads into uh, the fourth album, Super Pony World Fairy Tales, uh, which doesn't, unfortunately, uh, as of <laughs> November 2022, have an accompanying narrative. It's kind of anyone's guess. There are a couple of sort of trolly videos by Violet on YouTube that are a few seconds long that are like, oh, we explain the storyline of this, that and the other. And then it kind of cuts off mid-sentence a la John Tron or Frank Zappa, choose your poison. Or there's another one that's a link to a podcast which um, either doesn't exist or doesn't exist anymore because it just goes to this video is private. Super Pony World Fairy Tales is nearly three hours in length. It's 40 songs. It's split into two on Spotify. If you buy it off Bandcamp, it's all the one solid record. And part of the reason I'm talking about this is because I don't know if I'm insane, um, because it seems fundamentally absurd to me that metrically a triple album by a fandom musician, who at the time of recording was 22, uh, released in short order after another three very long albums the previous year, should be the most consistent album of comparable length I have ever heard. I mean, does, do I, does that mean that the highlights are as as high as something like Frank Zappa's Leather or The Clash's Sandinista? Not necessarily. But it is astonishingly devoid of anything I want to skip about six listens deep now, which seems bizarre to me, because I am actually a very critical listener. Part of how this is accomplished is simply the diversity of styles she brings without them feeling shallow or pastiche There are other long-form albums that I think do fall into this trap. The Magnetic Field's 69 Love Songs, I think, is a bit uh, smug and flippant in the way it uses different styles, but uh, I know people absolutely rave about that. They feel like sketches. Nothing here feels sketchy. I'll just get the negatives out of the way, uh, straight off the bat. Now, this is very much a refinement of Homewood's model. Homewood does really have its moments, although I feel that record does want for individually sort of memorable tracks with, with memorable choruses. I mean, that's part of my expectation, I think, coming from a perhaps more conventional songwriting route. However, certainly in earlier work, while Violet had absolutely nailed the sound that she wanted, it would seem, and also the the sense of dynamics and movement in these tracks, they, they never become boring. Sometimes in tracks that do actually have a strong vocal presence, there wasn't a sense of a focal point for the vocals. There wasn't sometimes that, that sort of snappy hook or chorus. Now that is a lot better on Super Pony World Fairy Tales. There are real standout catchy choruses here, or at least cool hooks. I mean, Scape Ghosts has a great memorable chorus. As to the likes of Serpent Dance and uh, I Was Afraid, and even the less sort of traditionally songy offerings, often have a memorable element. Uh, I do love the use of the spoken word dialogue to create a really unique hook in uh, Moonfire Eclipse, for example. 
elsewhere there is something that actually doesn't feel at all like an issue when you're listening to the tracks one thing i will say about some of the vocal heavy songs is that they don't embed in the memory all that well there's tracks that i i love the dynamics and the sound of and, and thoroughly enjoy listening to like graffiti which offsets this sort of very busy electronic sound with something far more jazzy and and plaintive and I, I love the contrast it really works but couldn't sing that song to you but this is not as big an issue as I might have made it sound because as I say there is so much other stuff going on there are all sorts of layered melodies going on in the background you know she's very good at a sort of upbeat electronic melody and and I do think sometimes the fact that tracks don't immediately embed themselves in your head is less to do with the fact that there aren't choruses or or hooks it's because she doesn't through accident or design adhere to the traditional chart pop hook them in and then repeat several times so by the time they've heard the song once they'll remember it uh, aesthetic mentioned scapegoast before that's about seven and a half minutes long technically the chorus repeats a lot of times but there's sufficient variety between them that it doesn't pull even if it's just when it's brought back after the, the, the middle instrumental section, having the drums in half time creates this great sense of space. She is fantastic at creating subtle variations that stop you from getting bored. It's one thing I can say, I'm never bored listening to this three-hour concept album that I do not understand on a narrative level whatsoever. And I think that's a real testament. No one is ever going to accuse Violet Pony of not having ideas and most established musicians can learn more than a thing or two from her about diversity and certainly dynamics. I mean, there's always a real sense of movement in these tracks. And just when you're settling into a groove, something titanic will just pop out of the blue. There's this amazing sort of skyscraping electronic motif that comes into here first. If that's how you pronounce it. Sorry. just stops you dead and there's a few tracks that do this with these titanic electronic riffs apparition springs to mind and it's a song that also has these really quiet piano-led mournful sections offset by something that sounds like it was influenced by the group justice um if you haven't heard their first album from 2007 strongly recommend it it's sort of glitchy french house and it's fantastic Credit to Violet Pony for being self-evidently influenced by Peter Gabriel, but being far more enjoyable to listen to, to me, than the source material. So well done there. Yeah, as mentioned before, I don't know what's going on a lot of the time in this. 
but it doesn't really matter to me. The sense of scope, the sense of adventure, the sense of uh, drama and variety of emotion here is enough to keep me rolling through it. I get the scale, I get the scope, even if I don't necessarily get the point. <laughs> While Medley of Visions is perhaps a, uh, a variation too far for my tastes, I've got to hand it to her for creating 20 minutes of, 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 of solid music based around a kind of a motivic structure, which is quite unusual. It does actually have more of a through flow than a lot of comparable length works. I think there's a misunderstanding about a lot of the best progressive rock stuff that it is a series of sections clustered together and, and that makes a long song. Uh, kind of like the Abbey Road medley, but a lot of subpar prog acts would just staple a load of song bits together and hope that it carried your interest for 20 minutes. Now it sounds like Violet's working a bit, a bit beyond that because there is a through line, not only in the piece itself, but also to other works in the series. So, yeah. Violet's voice is great, very versatile, but what I particularly love is the fact that she can really give a good bit of grain and gravel when she needs to. And she's not afraid of sounding gruff and abrasive when needs be. choice collaborators really do just nicely mix up the textures from time and again you know you get some cool guest guitar interjections on the likes of uh, the bard and some lovely guest vocals too but yeah in conclusion this tends to get overlooked compared to cutie marks and the fish whisperer that followed um, I mean, if you just look at the comparative number of ratings on Rate Your Music for these albums, uh, there are thousands for the following two albums. And I think just over a hundred for this one, because I think Cutie Marks was her breakthrough. It has her most played songs on it. But really, looking back, this might be her best album so far. And it is up against some stiff competition. I love Fish Whisperer particularly. But oddly, that record is shorter than this. And it's less consistent somehow. There is a sense of focused creativity and momentum to this record that is not only unmatched in her discography, I'm not sure if I know many other places where it is matched. Setting aside any fandom connection this may have... It's a really good album. I think you're bound to find something you enjoy on here if you like music. So yeah, this gets top top marks, top bolts. My god, that was bad. It's not over yet. Right, so enough of that chutney. On with the last episode before the two-part season six finale. Are you excited? I am. I am. Top Bolt was... What's going on here? It's a piece of paper. It's a 
quasi-embarrassing fact. I don't think I'll be the judge of that. Pornhart has never seen the movie Top Gun. Is that embarrassing? I don't know, you decide. Does it affect my enjoyment of this episode? No. Does it affect my understanding of this episode? No idea. But I must confess, the beach volleyball scene with Spitfire and Rainbow Dash was unexpected. But anywho, Top Bolt was first broadcast on uh, October the 15th, 2016, uh, based on a story by Joanna Lewis, Megan McCarthy and Christine Sonko, and written by Joanna Lewis and Christine Sonko. Now, we have encountered these before on the podcast. Lewis and Sonko were responsible for Gauntlet of Fire, which was a really good Spike-centric episode earlier in the season. And they will be very significant very soon. I will leave it at that. The episode gets a pretty spiffy 8.2 on IMDb, and the synopsis there reads... Twilight Sparkle and Rainbow Dash are called to the Wonderbolt Academy by the Cutie Map to help Academy hopefuls Sky Stinger and Vapor Trail with a friendship problem. It hasn't been a super season for Rainbow Dash, uh, not least because the the unsatisfying ghost of Newbie Dash is hovering over the proceedings. So here we have a another Wonderbolt Academy centric episode. You might note that Rainbow Dash starts the story wearing the flight jacket she was gifted in Newbie Dash. And the story is quite right, I feel, to actually pick up from there and have Rainbow Dash not go through the same Saved by the Bell rigmarole again, but have her falling into a sort of senior coaching role, which has been indicated as a strength of hers since Season 2's Hurricane Fluttershy. The cutie map pairs Twilight and Rainbow Dash for this episode, which is a generally really good pairing. They've had some solid episodes together, not least Testing 123 in Season 4, which also played off against their different teaching and learning methods. The intro is pretty tight. Within the first minute, there are a couple of instances of Lewis and Sonko really effectively combining plot information and humour in an organic way. I didn't notice, actually, (laughs) originally, that the real exposition dump for the episode is delivered by Spitfire, but is disguised by humour. She effectively explains that it's going to be a training week for possible new recruits, as Rainbow Dash was once, and she isn't looking forward to it. But Rainbow Dash isn't having any of it, and she (laughs) posits that Spitfire actually should love it because she really likes shouting at ponies and using her whistle. And Spitfire concedes this. And likewise, the cutie map pairing back at flight camp, which Rainbow Dash has to travel all the way back to Ponyville for, is again played off for its comedic value. Jumping ahead, there's another example of this really kind of clever dual-tier writing when Rainbow Dash and Twilight... Uh, talk over the top of each other when they assume they're going to be saying the same thing, which illustrates both one of the conflicts of the episode and provides a sort of cherry of humour on the scene at the same time. I think on the whole, as a bit of a spoiler, Lewis and Sonko are excellent writers. And it is perhaps no surprise, although they perhaps haven't been as prevalent as others this season, 
that they were picked, at least initially, to be the script editor taking over from Josh Haber for season seven. And we shall see how that goes down soon enough. As implied before, this, like the best previous Rainbow Dash episodes, feels like an evolution from her previous literal and figurative position. She arrives back to considerable hubbub from the uh, the new potential recruits. Uh, she's already established in this world. While she's evidently still under the command of Spitfire, she's, she's an established presence in the main team. And uh, she is allowed to take more of a coaching role. While the central conflict of the episode uh, ostensibly revolves around Sky Stinger and Vapor Trail, uh, two very well portrayed new characters, Twilight and Rainbow Dash have different ways of approaching the problem they present. The problem being that Sky Stinger oozes confidence to an arrogant degree, and he's certain that he's going to be taken on as the sort of first pick at the end of the training week, but it turns out he is being buoyed up on the QT, no pun intended, by his quote-unquote wing pony vapor trail, who turns out is actually allowing him to perform these feats. When these two have to fly solo, neither of them is really going to be able to achieve. Sky Stinger, because he's actually not presently got the competence needed to perform solo, but doesn't know it. And Vapor Trail, because she has all the skill, but has none of the confidence or self-interest. This creates the wider conflict between Twilight and Rainbow Dash, where Twilight feels that the best solution is to just address the issue directly to them and suggest that Sky Sprint improve, learn from his mistakes, and get over it. Rainbow Dash, however, is very concerned that this will completely break his confidence and that he won't be able to achieve anything because he will entirely lose faith in what ability he has. These are both valid viewpoints. It is a believable conflict and it does mirror their larger character attributes. Illustrated elsewhere in the episode of Twilight, who's all about theory, self-analysis, improvement. And Rainbow Dash, who's very much, you know, go out and get them. Her skills as a coach are, are less in the sort of objective criticism line and more in the pepping people up, hyping them up, so they feel they can accomplish what they felt they couldn't before. These are both important elements and a balance has to be found in order to nurture ability, I think. Ultimately, and perhaps logically, Twilight's approach seems to triumph, and they confront the two ponies about the reality of the situation. And the two react in very believable ways here, as a character who has effectively been encouraged to be arrogant and to believe in himself in spite of what reality would tell him. Sky Sprinter feels betrayed. He doesn't focus on his own shortcomings or, or how much Vapor Trail has given up for him, but instead sees conspiracy and people trying to embarrass him. It takes him quite a while to come round to the fact that maybe he has to do some work himself. And likewise, Vapor Trail is just upset 
that he is upset with her because she, without even thinking about it, has effectively built her life around Sky Stinger. It is a folehood slash fillyhood friendship that has gone out of hand and become very unbalanced. She has indulged him like a parent, and as a result, he has not grown up, and she has failed to cultivate her own life. The lovely visual motif of the of the faces in the clouds that Vapor Trail produces, uh, it says a lot. Before this encounter, when Rainbow Dash is trying to train up Vapor Trail for her solo performance, Rainbow Dash illustrates what needs to be done by carving some clouds into an image of Rainbow Dash, of course, looking slick. Vapor Trail replicates this, but she instinctively creates the face of Sky Stinger. And Rainbow Dash just shrugs, as if she's saying, well, you know, it technically meets the criteria. She's got the, she's got the skill down. She'll probably just encourage this. But it is missing the larger point. It is therefore... A lovely bit of catharsis when towards the episode's end, Vapor Trail finally produces her own face in the clouds. Up to this point, up to the conflict, this is a fantastic episode, as in absolutely top draw. And as a whole, I still think it is a really good episode. There is, however, an issue I find with the resolution, such as it is. It might seem like a minor thing, but given how well all of these characters have been written so far, I think Sky Stinger's redemption is a little bit cheap, convenient, and actually undermines Vapor Trail's development somewhat. Because he becomes a great flyer, technically, at the same time and at the same pace that Vapor Trail becomes able to admit that she is a great flyer. I think it would perhaps be more beneficial if it wasn't quite so evenly meted out, like, oh, Sky Sprinter, you need to get better, or Vapor Trail, you should have been more self-confident. I don't think it's that equal. I think Sky Sprinter certainly has a lot longer of a path in order to show he is worthy of the Wonderbolts than she does. As difficult as I admit it can be to gain self-interest again after a, a long period of, of, of effectively just looking after other people. I imagine it must be like um, uh, parents after the kids fly the nest. But I do feel I would have rather it was left with Vapor Trail showing she was ready to get through to the Wonderbolts. But Sky Stinger getting better and proving he is willing to learn and improving, not quite getting there. But being okay with that and understanding that he can get there, but he needs to work at it more. And that acceptance being the payoff. Because I think them both being great and then both getting in at the same time to the Wonderbolts, it does cheapen things a bit. This is a very small portion of the episode, however. And there's so much else going on here that's just really good character writing. Also ends on one of the worst... Ha 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 ha. Find something funny in our predicament finales of the show. Were people still expecting this as the, the standard capper to an episodic show uh, by the mid-2010s? It reminds me of the end of, like, a Star Trek The Original Series episode. But basically, in this case, 
Rainbow Dash discovers she's got to go immediately back to flight camp again, having arrived back in Ponyville for the second time. And it seems like some really serious news being carried by the Wonderbolt who, who acts as messenger. But no, Ra- Rainbow Dash sort of falls back in exhaustion and distress. And then Twilight just shares the joke with the messenger even though it seemed like quite a serious situation about two seconds previously. It's very odd. I mean, is it, was it supposed to be that that was a prank from the Wonderbolts? If so, they don't really illustrate that very clearly. And if not, what on earth is the Wonderbolt finding so funny? Anyway, small potatoes. Because there's another key aspect to the overarching success of this episode that I've not discussed. And that is the fact that it's very funny. I love the way Spitfire is written here. Kind of the -the over-the-top shouty drill instructor, but she knows it. And her pompous dressing down is sometimes undermined. Like I do love the, Am I going to make you fly so hard your wings will fall off? That has only happened once. The classroom scene, aside from this slightly pinched Simpsons eyes on a face mask joke, has some great little comic bits. Rainbow Dash barreling in, scaring everybody with the air horn, and then telling everyone to call them T-Sparks and the Dashinator. Is that wonderful contrast between genuine presence and authority that Rainbow Dash has and her complete unawareness that she's actually really corny and childish at times. But the best gag is that the minute Twilight starts her lesson on the chalkboard, it cuts away to Rainbow Dash sitting in one of the class stools, even though she's an even student, being the first one to fall asleep. Again, it's playing off that different approach to learning and teaching. And it knows that it is just a source of humour, almost intrinsically. It's a great pairing. Just be honest with them. I'm sure they'll understand where you're coming from. In conclusion, although I do have some quibbles with how the episode resolves compared to how strongly the conflicts are built up in this and the characters are cultivated... I do think this is a really good episode, and it does illustrate what strong writers uh, Lewis and Sonko are. I hope they write for the show again. Hint, hint. So, yeah, another really good one. 8.5. Got any problems, troubles, conundrums, or any other sort of issues, major or minor, that I, as a good friend, could help you solve? So, alas and alack, that's about all we have time for this week. But I do hope you'll join me again next time for the season finale. There'll also be a bit of a sort of season wrap-up at the end and a look forward to season seven. But in the meantime, as always, if you've got pony-related stuff you want to get off your chest, that you want to sing about, you can get in touch through our email, allplottedout at outlook.com, all one word, all lowercase, all plotted out at outlook.com, or contact us on the Facebook page at All Plotted Out. But until then, stay safe, stay well, stay tolerant, and don't let an elderly farmer perform surgery on you. If you can avoid it. Maybe the later books are slightly more realistic than I gave them credit for. <laughs> <laughs>